This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. It's still Black History Month, fam, even for a few more days here in the year of our Lord, 2024. Twelve-year-old enslaved boy Edmund Albius invented the technique that made the vanilla industry possible. He revolutionized the cultivation of vanilla. He made it possible for us to enjoy treats like vanilla ice cream. George Crumb invented the potato chips. Thanks to him, our mindless television watching became a bit more delicious. Lonnie Johnson, NASA engineer, invented the super soaker. He made your childhood hot summers fun. George Washington Carver overcame slavery to achieve fame as a scientist, botanist, and educator. He invented over 300 uses for peanuts, and he's responsible for so much more. He's credited for the idea of crop rotation to improve soil health. Dr. Patricia Era Bath, 1981, inventor of the laser faco probe, used worldwide in eye surgery to remove cataracts. Bath founded the American Institute for the Prevention of Blindness. She restored sight to millions of people suffering from cataracts. For those who love baking but want the task to be made easy as possible, Anna M. Mangan foresaw your needs. She invented the pastry fork in 1891. Mary Patrice Kenner changed the world of feminine care with the invention of the sanitary belt, the forerunner of sanitary pads. Her creation was considered to be the first form of modern menstruation protection. Joseph H. Smith invented the lawn sprinkler. Through his invention, he saved y'all many hours dragging long hoses across enormous lawns. Thomas Edison's light bulb was too hot and had a short lifespan and wasn't efficient for homes and businesses. Louis Latimer invented the brighter and more efficient light bulb. Factually, a black man took the world out of darkness. Your perception of reality is white deception. All of these people were African-Americans who have invented things that I would wager to bet most of you haven't heard uh, of who these people were and what they have done. This is the sadness. This is the deterioration of blackness and that what has happened to our history and how our history has been diminished. So, fam, take a minute. Recognize where we've been and what we've been doing and what black folks have contributed. White folks steal everything, including our history. The great James Baldwin once said, it comes with great shock to discover that the flag to which you have pledged allegiance is not a pledge allegiance back to you. I want to give credit to the Instagram profile, African Archives. You get a chance, drop them a like and a follow and check them out. This black history, folks, come on. enemies within our country. I think it's a combination of demonology and psyop. The citizens are going to rise up and become deputized. I have always supported President Trump. I, I like the way he talked. He reminded me of most men. Joe Biden last night in the debate, hes it's like he's not even a human being. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism. Can you imagine repatriating all the black Americans that Pat just spoke about to Africa? Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, 
on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins, faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, or even out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. And look, we won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'll be your host, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, hey, everybody. Here we are back. Back at it. That's right. Another episode of Profane Faith in the Mix. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully you're enjoying uh, a nice warm winter, thanks to uh, Exxon and uh, Chevron and Texaco and British Petroleum BP. Um, oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, this is uh, probably going to be one of the warmest winters here in Chicago. It's currently 60 degrees uh, in late February when... Uh, in reality, this time is we're usually no higher than the 20s. <laughs> so, you know, here we are, you know, uh, I, you know, it's just one of those things that I'm just kind of like, wow, this is this is weird. It's weird. I mean, it's nice. Don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining, but I do. I've come to appreciate my seasons and the fact that we're not getting them anymore uh, is very, very, very concerning. Um and, you know, it's it's stuff that people have been talking about for a long time. And, you know, we're finally here. Uh, and so here we are. So hopefully you're enjoying that. Hopefully you're enjoying uh, Black History Month. You've been taking in some things. Wanted to give you a few names of inventors, scientists, folks that have made your life a little bit easier that probably haven't gotten the recognition they need to be getting. Uh, black history is often, uh, you know, thrown to the back in history textbooks. And, um, you know, white folks steal a lot. Uh, and I think the more you dig on black Black history and particularly with inventions and where black people have really created what we now call the United States of America, um, you would be shocked. You'd be real shocked. You would be blown away by the amounts of things that we have done in this country and for this country only to get very little to no credit. Um, so, uh, yeah, just one of those things. Black History Month. Here we are, 2024. Um, wanted to put that out there. I got an amazing guest, and I want to get right to her because this story is going to blow you away. She has, she's doing some amazing work. Um, but I just wanted to check in uh, with y'all. Here we are, season seven. This is kind of a long season. I just noticed that this season has been going. Now that we've moved back to, um, you know, every other week uh, releasing episodes. I'm noticing that uh, the seasons are going longer. It used to be a time when I would start in the fall and go through till about the summer, take a break and then restart. And those that would be the season runner, right? That'd be the season time kind of following uh, the network television uh, schedule, right? You know, you start in the fall, go through spring and then you have your season finale and then the summers usually are off. Um but this this year was a little different. Um, I was gonna actually going to wrap things up earlier, uh, but folks keep calling, folks keep checking in, and I'm just going to keep putting these conversations out. So we're still in season seven. Technically, it should be eight. Um, but I've also thought about doing away with the seasons and just putting episodes out um, as they need. And you know, those of you who follow the show, um, you already know uh, what's going on. You already know what's down. Um, and so I, you know, I realize I haven't, you know, posted much to Twitter, 
lately. Um, you know, I've, like I said, I've had more of a hate than love relationship with social media. Uh, if you follow me on anything, really, I don't really post anywhere anymore, anything that's worth of anything. <laughs> um, I just post memes on Instagram. That's it. Um, and then on Facebook, I try to keep this page up, but I haven't really updated it in a while. Um, and I mostly post stupid stuff uh, on Facebook. And that's it. Uh, so I apologize for those of you who are like on X and Twitter and all that and like, you know, follow that stuff. Um, I appreciate those who have uh, mainly the way people find out about profane faith is those who already subscribed or those who, you know, who get notifications on other uh, podcast platforms. And so I don't know. I'm just trying to figure out. And I appreciate Dauntless Media. Dauntless Media also, you know, our kind of our like our managing support team crew uh, network that I'm a part of um, also promotes. And that's brought in followers. So I don't know. I'm looking at it from a a needs perspective. Like, well, and really, what are the results? Because I didn't feel like I was gaining that many followers from X or Twitter. I'm just going to call it Twitter. It, you know, fuck Elon Musk, Musk, man. Dude is whack. Um, but yeah, no, seriously, I, I think um, I just wasn't getting that much. And the traction I was getting on, it was very little. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm still still on the fence. I don't really post to Instagram really any of this. Like I said, my profile, Dr. Dan, uh, it's just it's all memes now. Um, and I've kind of really given up on social media. Um, but, uh, you know, here's the podcast. I think if people really want to, people say, oh man, what do you got out there? It's, it's a podcast or, you know, you can read some of my works and stuff. Uh, I got a couple other things in the works right now. We'll see if those things come to fruition. Um, looking at starting, uh, this, uh, a former student of mine now friend who has a television network. Um, and, uh, it's kind of like a YouTube channel, but like for religious and Christian stuff and, uh, he wants me to come on, you know, and uh, and do some stuff. Uh, they're very conservative, um, and I'm fine with that. I'm fine in hanging in conservative spaces. I let him know, like, hey, you know, I'm anything but conservative and uphold traditional family values. But he was like, nah, man, I know what I'm getting into. I was like, all right, here we go. So I'll keep y'all abreast of that um, and, you know, where, where that uh, comes down to. But those are just some things that are popping uh, where I feel like I can still put out material when, where, where people who want to be in touch and want to be stay engaged can. Right. And and, um, you know, of course, my website, I try to keep that up as well. Um, and of course, White Hodge podcast, you know, so if anything news comes up, that's where you'll find it and stuff. So I know it's a little bit more. It's less of the marketing thing and the traditional spaces that people put out. But I don't know. It's just where I'm at right now. You know what I'm saying? Um, we can have more of this conversation about social media and just, you know, posts and all that stuff. I don't know. I just I just don't see the point. If I had 50,000 followers and there was a sense of a, a give and take, uh, I may, maybe I might see that. I don't know. Um, but we, you know, we'll, we'll just we'll have to see. We'll have to see. Uh, I don't think I'm going to get no 50,000 followers. Um and, uh, you know, I'm just not willing to put out constant content just to make it, you know, to, you know, four digits, five digits uh, in followers and stuff. So 
that's where I'm at. That's where the show is at. The show's still doing good. We're still holding, you know, between 1,500 to 2,000 uh, listeners, uh, you know, roughly per episode, depending on who's on, who's not. Uh, there's also back episodes since we've been going since 2017. You know, a lot of people can go back now in the archive and, you know, listen into stuff. And so, you know, I get those reports. And it's hard to keep up with, you know, podcast stats uh, in regards, you know, in terms of who's listening, who's not. Is it a bot that just started it? You know, and sometimes, you know, you don't know, like, whether you started or stopped. Like, oftentimes, like on SoundCloud, uh, which, by the way, we're on SoundCloud. So, if you're not, if you want to follow us there, that'll be great. Um, and on SoundCloud, you know, anybody can just press play and then that'll... You know, uh, it'll, it'll show up as a listen. Doesn't necessarily mean that they finish the episode. It just shows up as a listen. So some of these stats, sometimes you got to look at it with a grain of salt and, you know, see where they go with that. But, uh, wow, yo, this guest that I have on, I met her. Oh, man, I don't even know when I met her. Last year, for sure. Uh, she was working at where I worked at. And she reached out. She was like, yo, we got to meet. And I was like, man, why haven't we not met? And, of course, as most good people do, they left. <laughs> She left uh, because being on staff at where I'm at is just hell. It's a hellscape. Um, and especially if you're a person of color, it is just nefarious on every level. Um, you know, and like I've, I've said on the show plenty of times, like, you know, because of my position as a faculty member and being tenured, being a full professor, you know, I have some leeway uh, and I have some access to conversations and be the freedom to say things that others don't, especially if you're on staff. Um, so I met her and we've just been friends ever since. And I was just curious about her story. I was, we went out to coffee, I think this, this, this summer. And I was like, dude, I got to get you on the show. And she's like, oh, okay. Uh, well, we'll see. And kept going back and forth. And finally she was like, all right, let's hook this up. Brie Yoon Sun Joon uh, is amazing. You're about to hear her story, about to hear just what she does, the work that she's doing. She's an adjunct professor uh, out at Loyola. She's a social justice activist. Um, she is somebody who is connected with, you know, community. She comes out of the evangelical world. Um, uh, I believe her parents were involved with Young Life uh, at one point and just gets it. She's able to speak evangelical, but also able to speak the real deal, you know, that whole code switching thing. Um, I've appreciated her passion, her fire, her energy. Uh, it, she is a survivor. <laughs> you, you about to hear all that. Um, and she's a fighter. Like, she don't take no shit. Um, and I love that she embodies, you know, all of that. She's a mom, uh, a single mom on top of that. And uh, raising her kid. Uh, to see all of these things, you know, and especially in this time and era that we find ourselves in, raising kids is not easy. Um, I mean, raising kids has never been easy, uh, but it particularly being a single parent, being an ethnic minority. So she has my maddest respect for what she's doing. I'm going to put all of her, uh, she's written some stuff on Medium. She's got some stuff on YouTube. Put all those links in the show notes. But I just wanted you to hear Bree's story and hear where she's been. Um, and just a, a voice uh, that is doing great things, even in the, in the midst of the shit that we find ourselves in as a society. So without any further ado, enjoy this conversation. Check out Bree. Here we go. All right, cool. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's stop right in. Um, Bree, thank you so much for taking the time and, and, and coming on the show. Uh, I've been wanting to get you on for a while, so welcome. 
good to be here. It's good to see you too, man. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> so yeah, thanks for too. having me. Um, well, the first question I ask everybody, what's been happening from birth to now? My God. So what made you choose that question though? That's that's crazy. But I mean, yeah, lots of lots of crazy. <laughs> what, you're the first you're the first guest who's who's come back and asked me a question on top of a question. That's good. Um, you know, the uh, legal practitioner in me. Oh, there you go. I see, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, to get into that. That's yeah, legal practitioner. I love that. Um, you know, I I love learning about people's story and where they come from and. Um, everybody answers it differently. Some people take it and run with it. Some people give an abbreviated, um, I remember when I had Tony Penn on here, Dr. Tony Penn, Anthony Penn, and he, you know, I asked him that question. He it literally within like 40 seconds was done. And I was like, oh man, I wanted to hear oh, more. Oh man. Um, oh wow. So I just like hearing about people's story and, um, however they want to share, however much they want to share, however much they feel comfortable um, that's one of the reasons why I asked that particular question, um, first, and then that has always led into thousands of more other pathways to, to engage with as yeah, a, as a, as a communications guy, you know, I was just going to say, cause you're the communications guy, <laughs> like you're the guy. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, thanks for entertaining my uh, question on the question. That was not cool. No, no. But I mean, to be honest with you, and I know you had asked me that before, just when we were like riffing about doing this together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know why, but strangely enough, the first thing that comes to my mind is imperialism. That's what's been going on from birth till now. And uh, I remember being in grad school and one of my favorite, I guess you could say professors at the end of a very, very, very challenging, ridiculous class because he taught like the whole, you know, oppression class, right. Yeah, that ever yeah. first, whatever. And he said, I think what everybody's really talking about, cause the whole class was just like, people were just beefing with each other. And <laughs> yeah, right, I've, had, I've had those go. And then the white kid in the corner was like, I don't think this is for me anymore. You know, right. <laughs> yeah. it was, looking scared as shit. And he was like, I think what everybody is just really kind of trying to get at is, um, capitalism. Ooh. And I just had this moment where I was like, shit, man, that's totally it. So I think about birth till now yeah. and all of this like overarching stuff and yeah. even and really even like the individual struggles that I've had at some point in my life, maybe 20, 21 ish. I just had this realization that, yeah, it was imperialism and capitalism hmm. kind of manifesting itself into like my bones and, you know, I'm Korean. So of course, like we don't really have a word for like mental health per se, but we just say Han, which is basically embodies this idea that like this trauma gets into your bones and it just, you just hold it. Okay. Yeah. That's deep. Mm-hmm. That is deep because I, 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 yeah, that's something I've been trying to undo for a long time. I mean, just in my own life, I would definitely say, I mean, I think, you know, like you said, the stuff that's in the bones. Um, yeah, that's powerful. That's powerful. What, uh, what, how, well, let me, let me start. I had a rush of like six different questions, but let me start with this. What, uh, what's been your pathway to where you find yourself now, either, you know, education wise, um, I, I see the, uh, the, 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 I know people can't see this now, but I see it like the, the poster in the back of you. You got somebody with a, you know, it says citizenship, stop deportations. 
uh, obviously you care about community and people. Um, say more a little bit more about that and, and particularly with capitalism and imperialism, because I do feel like those are powerful echelons of systems that sit upon us everywhere we go. Um, you get a job, well, you have health benefits. Well, then the health benefits, that's been capitalized as well, you know, and- yeah, and the risk shift, yeah, for right. sure. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. And it makes us so reliable and so vulnerable to our place of employment, who is in turn so reliable and so vulnerable on their negotiations with the government and vice versa. And like, we're all kind of entangled in this weird dysfunctional relationship. <laughs> right. Uh, situationship. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, I think because of the imperialistic uh, thematic elements, so, so to speak, with my own life and how I got here and how I became an American. Okay. Um, and then the capitalism that manifested itself in my life thereafter. So, you know, I was adopted from Korea and um, the story of that is often very uh, vague and the government basically <clears throat> after Japanese colonization and then the civil war that happened right after that, they just couldn't bounce back. So they sold a quarter million children to mostly white folks. And I did not know that. Wow. A quarter million children. I, whoa. Yeah. And so most of those adoptions were either coerced or fraudulent. Um, the paperwork is not real or if it is real it's just heavily heavily coerced from the mothers um i have a girlfriend whose mom hired a private investigator because the government agency that she was working with told her that it was either a temporary situation or that her daughter was going to stay close by so that she could come and get her when she was ready and when she found out she had left the country and she just hired a private investigator and went wow. and got her wow so um yeah, but there's all kinds of legalities, you know. And so for me, um, I actually was of the big, what they call it the big wave. So I was part of the big wave that came over um, in the 80s. And that was, um, you know, what was going on here in the West was the the, the sociopolitical moment that was going on in the West was the New Deal had happened. Mm -hmm. The GI Bill had shut out effectively one million black veterans from rightful home ownership. And that's when you saw a huge spike in black child welfare and black homelessness, which arguably has never really been recovered or repaired in this nation. Yeah. So, yeah. and the national association of black social workers stood up and, you know, in the big movements in the sixties and seventies and said, Hey, you know, stop taking all of our kids. Right. And um, so then there was the pushback and then the multi-ethnic placement act happened in Clinton's administration mm. um, and Indian child welfare act and all of that, because people of color in the United States had started to catch on to the fact that this was all systematic. Right. right. And it was another way to um, disenfranchise and effectively erase black and native people. So, um, and then think, and then it's easy to finger point, right? Because you're right. like, oh, they just won't fit mothers or whatever. Right. And um, so to absolve themselves of that, a lot of Protestant white Christian families, well-intentioned, started to say, well, it's, you know, 
It's too political to adopt a black child. We are federally not allowed to adopt a native child anymore. Um, so we're going to start going international. And that's when this whole imperialism thing started to come into play. And that's how I got here. My parents in Korea got divorced. At the time in the 80s, it was still very much, if you get divorced, your kid, you the mom loses custody of the kids, they go with the dad's side of the family. So that's what my siblings went. Because I was still not born yet, I was still in utero, I came to the United States. And then the government got, you know, arguably... I don't know the, I don't want to mis, misinform, but it was in the well into the billions of dollars that the government was able to kick back from. So like, for example, when Seoul hosted the Olympics in 88, everyone was just marveling. They're like, this country has gone through almost 50 years of colonization. And then on the tail end of that, as people normally do, right, nations go through a civil war after something like that. How were they able to come up from a third world country? To, they're almost a first world country now. It was still a dictatorship when I was born, but Korea is a first world country now. And it was because the government decided to sell the kids. Wow. Wow. So, okay. yeah. That's deep. That's deep, to sell the kids. Well, and I guess, I mean, I... I guess I, I I wondered like you know this kind of influx particularly of Korean immigrants, but but tied to or ethnic minority immigrants uh, who are tied to white families and stuff. So 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 let me ask you this again. That's you just you you flooded my mind with like two dozen more questions. But let me let me ask this: How did you come then to a sense of so one of the things that I hear a lot of. Uh, from ethnic minority folks who've been raised by different, well, by white families, is the challenge to understand their own ethnic identity, their own uh, pathway, their own history. How have you gotten to a point where you've, you've, you know this, you got it, you got it, and 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 you're passing it on? But what was that process like? So I work for a Korean agency that's right next door to North Park, and it's I'm right next door to Helwig. Um, so um, when I came to that agency was actually not through North Park, which is shameful, right? Because they even used to have the Korean studies minor and things. And I never knew about the organization when I was an undergrad there and it was right next door. So whatever. But <laughs> I came to the agency through my graduate experience at Loyola. Okay. And um, I had grown up um in and out of the public school system in Minnesota, um, in Brooklyn mm. Park. And my parents had selective schooled me, open enrolled me rather, sorry, to school in Brooklyn Park because it was much more racially diverse. I made my little case, being a little baby, like legal practitioner back then, made my little case for why and all my best girlfriends were going there. And they were all first generation Asian immigrants, whatever. And so to this day, Brooklyn Park is the most mixed it's very much like albany park it's the most mixed neighborhood slash community in minnesota ethnically okay. um i think the school that i was at is now like 90 something percent per people of color and back in the day it was very much that way too so it was mostly black um some white and um first generation Hmong kids so um and then you know us okay uh korean vietnamese chinese whatever yeah um, so I was always really proud of, you know, being Asian American, but in terms of being Korean, um, that didn't really come into play until I had my son mm. and he's Korean and then he's black and he's native American. So I thought, you know, this is my moment to 
to do right by him, to do right in a way that like no one has ever done for me. And I've kind of just been feeling around in the dark. Now, what I will say is part of like the public policy and the restorative justice that went on in the presidential administration that happened when I was in about sixth grade. So around that time in Korea, that was the most progressive president that we've ever really had. And um, he enacted restorative justice. And that is now what I teach at North Park for St. John, who's amazing. But the full circle of that is that was my first experience with restorative justice was as a kid. And he made efforts to publicly apologize to all of us who had been sent away and adopted. And he did a lot with dual citizenship efforts. And, you know, he was very outspoken and very vocal about the fact that the government had wronged us and that um, what, what had happened was not right. And he acknowledged that. So um, that gave me a little bit of seed of hope. And then having my son was obviously the biggest moment, um, especially because he was unplanned and there was so much pressure for me to either abort him or give him up for adoption myself. And I just felt like it was such a soul decision. Well, you know, because like the whole issue was he's part black and I'm not married. And (laughs) like, you know, coming from that white Christian, well-intentioned background. Yeah, yeah. Then the statistics came into play. They just wanted me to know, you know, did you know, Brie, that like over 70 some percent of black kids are born out of wedlock? Well, I'm four months pregnant now, so I don't really know what you want me to do. (laughs) Have a shotgun wedding in the church. You know what I mean? Right. So anyway, yeah, so it was that type of situation. And uh, um, I really came to this agency thinking, I have to do this for my son because I was going to go to a black agency to do my internship in grad school in Inglewood because that's just what I felt more. I'm very proud of being Korean American. Let me say that. I love being Korean American. That's how I identify. But culturally, I think I was like, hey, this is a community that I'm pretty comfortable with. You know, let me just do the thing that I've had professional experience with, personal experience with. I went to school. This, you know, this was my, you know, I've I've really only really, really been with black men my whole life. So I'm like, let me just deal with that. And yeah. um, and I ended up going to a Korean agency. Yeah. So yeah. So when we would have staff meetings for the first, I don't know, I want to say six to eight months, um, I would just sit in the staff meetings because they were all in Korean. And um, I, I just had tears like coming down my oh, face. Wow. Like that's what that was. It was the trauma of yeah. like losing everything. Yeah. And um, I wouldn't really, ha- I would be kind of expressionless or just, you know, just doing my work and just writing <laughs> But I would just cry and I I was, it was uncontrollable. And then later we had a non-Korean speaking Korean American intern who was also having the crying. And I was like, oh, that's just the trauma of it. And I don't think she was adopted, but I definitely think that the language had been worked, had been colonized out of her. Okay. Yeah. And the way it had been with me. And, um, So, you know, and I had been, I've always been literate in Korean and I've always been like able to read and write because that's part of the restorative justice efforts that that administration made was they made sure to have enough money to send people over from Korea to be like, hey, you have to at least teach these kids the alphabet. You have to at least teach them like basic songs and the national anthem and stuff. So that was accessible to me as a child growing up in Minnesota. But that's about it. You know, it was pretty bare bones. You know, the rest was kind of like, we're sorry, we made a mistake. Good luck out there. Yeah. Um, so being welcomed back into the community that way, um, 
after just being, you know, I guess essentially out in the desert for as many years as I was, um, was, was really an experience and just sort of like, it's almost like I could just feel it like coming out of my body finally. Right. Right. The, the food and everything too. Um, and there's this one soup called tamkitan and it's uh-huh. like, it's supposed we eat it in the summer cause it's supposed to be like a healing thing. And it really is. And cooking for my son, but there's just been, so returning to all of that and also just at the same time being welcomed back for essentially kind of what felt like the first time. Yeah. Um, and becoming a, and becoming a community-based leader in the Korean community and being connected to Korean women who have power, who have structural visibility. I never saw that ever growing up. It was, you know, being in Chicago and seeing that how close our community is and all of our ethnic communities have problems. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But um, it's been incredible. So, you know, this, this being Black History Month and talking about the, you know, seeing the the black American community being able to reclaim themselves has just been um, a huge um, model and like a pathway and something that I really admire. Um, and, you know, you do it with swag, you know, you do it with style <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and very unapologetically. And I, I really appreciate that because you don't know how healing that is for so, for some of us in the mm. adopted Korean community mm. to be able to say like, you know, it's our experiences are not the same, you know, arguably like black American experience was much more devastating, much more violent. And the systemic impacts are, are you still reeling from no doubt and healing from, but to be in so much isolation and to have my son who is, you know, part of both of those communities um, to be able to, to feel that, strength in that resilience it yeah. gives me strength it gives me resilience yo that's deep man i wow yeah 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 no and well and and, and i'm um, thank you for answering that by the way um because i think there's there's something about the different communities we come from an identity one of the things that i emphasize a lot in all of my classes is you know how we identify um, how, you know, and, and where we, you know, where do we find those spaces of identity as well? Right. You know, the communities, uh, the, the history of that. Um, and one of the things I've seen, particularly with, with, with ethnic minority kids that have been adopted is there, you know, there's a sense of frustration when they fa- find out that, wow, wait a minute, I have a whole history over here. I remember, uh, one student I had a few years back, um, she was uh, Nigerian, but she'd been raised in a predominantly all white community, very evangelical. And it really wasn't until she got into her, like her sophomore year and took an African-American uh, uh, studies course and was just like, whoa. And it was just just blew her away of just, you know, the identities and, 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 and things that she had not been given. Um, and that's some powerful, powerful stuff. I think about all the things that I've done for my own history that came out after high school, right? It's like our school system, right? Right. It really isn't set up that way to, you know, for you to learn, especially, you know, here in black history month, like even, you know, I post nothing but memes on, on my, on my Instagram account, but I'm yeah, trying yeah. To, to put <laughs> my mean game strong. You know what I'm saying? I, I, <laughs> follow a lot of different yeah. <laughs> I follow a lot of different accounts um but uh been trying to post some things just the history 
of what we as black folk have done in this country and the shit that's been taken from us, right? You know, it's just like you, you read the history books and you think, oh, it's nothing but white men. They were, they're the ones who, who founded civilization. They're the ones who, you know, created the pyramids, right? It's like the next thing you know, it's like, you're like, oh my God, it's just nothing but white people, right? So how have you navigated, let me ask you this, this is a big one, but how have you navigated religion in your own life and just kind of what we find ourselves now with kind of this Christian nationalism that's spreading like cancer, really? Like pancreatic cancer. It really is. You know, I don't want to be like in this moment where we're having like this corny moment because we're having like a nice conversation and whatever and just shooting the shit. But I will say, Dan, that um, I because I got my bachelor's at North Park and I think you hadn't yet arrived or maybe you did like just as I was graduating. Okay. But being able to get to know you a little bit better and, you know, meet you and get to know you as well as Peter St. John, as well as um, uh, I don't know if you know Eugenia in the seminary and as well as working for Cherie. A little bit. I know Eugenia a little, a little bit. bit. Yeah, 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 she's amazing. But just, you know, those pillars of of real support and like real talk. Um and then the Catalyst program actually hosted, while I was the eight, uh, assistant director of diversity working under Cherie, um, they they hosted an event and I asked for her permission to go and she said yes. And it was with my now pastor, um, mm. Pastor uh, Reverend Moss oh, oh, from yeah, yeah, Trinity. Yeah. Uh-huh. So yeah, so I am a member at Trinity now, which has been a really amazing experience so far. Um, obviously I really, the only other Korean person at the church, she's actually black and Korean. Okay. Um, and, um, she's connected to our agency too, through her, her mom, her umma, which is kind of funny, but anyway, it's a small world. Right. So, um, but in terms of like the way I was raised was just your typical, because my dad is a, is a minister, you know, my dad. Um, and that was very incorrect. Um, Mm. that theology is not appropriate Mm. and that theology is, um, actually kind of toxic. And, uh, that's why I was able to sort of take some of the stuff at North park with a grain of salt. However, at the same time, not, I think it was my own trauma from growing up with white Christianity. So embedded into everything into, into money, Literally on money. Absolutely. In court. Absolutely. Every little thing into the fabric of how I got here and how I got citizenship, which pitted me and still continues to pit me against my own ethnic community today. Tell it. Tell it. And I think that's sinful. Mm. And that's so divisive. And that's not from us as people of color. And that's also not of God. That's disgusting. (laughs) Yes. 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 They're out there playing God. Yeah. And, um, it's still whipping us essentially for not getting in line and being obedient to that kind of toxic theology. And it's irresponsible for us to not call that out. And I feel like um, since I, you know, I didn't know why I was coming back to North Park as an employee. Hmm. I just I knew I was going to get the job. 
I don't mean that arrogantly. I mean that spiritually. Yeah. 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 But my experience there was horrifying as a student. It was extremely traumatic. I didn't perform well academically. And it's, um, you know, once again, under the guise of white Christianity, it's so easy to say because they're just dumb minorities because we gave them a huge opportunity and they blew it. No, because you don't have structures of support because your Christianity, the way that you're trying to accommodate is not accommodating at all. Right. You're just using us. So coming back, the whole purpose of that spiritually and God's plan for my life mm-hmm. was so that he could show me that nothing I've done or not done in my life is warranted to keep me from knowing him and being a part of something that's a community of Christ. But Jesus is not white. He's black. <laughs> And so the second go around of me coming back to North Park and having conversations with you and with Cherie and then hearing from Reverend Moss and then just Cherie, after I went to that, I was talking to her about it and had been in this very ambivalent space because of the shame that my own family has put on me for being a single unmarried mother because of the shame that my own ethnic community has put on me for being a single unmarried mother. And then you add the whole stripper thing on top of that. And that's, you know, I didn't feel like I deserved to even think about knowing who God actually was and Mm. whether he was white or black was like completely not on the table because I didn't feel worthy. Wow. So... Yeah, so she put me on to read Jesus and the Disinherited, right? Yeah, there you and go. then I know we've had some conversations about that too. And I just started watching Dr. Reverend Moss's sermons online. And I was kind of like, let me just check it out. Yeah. Because, you know, there's so much harm. And that's the first time I started realizing that the church, the white church has harmed me. Christian nationalism has harmed me. And, um, You know, my son had periodically said, well, we should pray or we should do this. And, you know, no, I would do native things with him and Mm -hmm. like smudge him off or things that were typically like more okay And like before Korea was colonized by the French in the 1700s, shaman stuff, you know. Yeah. But um, no, I really kind of was like a little bit ambivalent to all of that. And then slowly, because of my because of my short little stint back at North Park as a full time and the conversations that I've had with with you and the few other selected individuals who I've mentioned, mm-hmm. um, kind of broke those walls down. And um, it's it was a very it's been a very healing experience. Mm. Um, but as far as what's going on now, you know. And then the saddest part is that in these Christian institutions of higher education, um, we're seeing so much of that toxic impact. Right. And it hurts me to see how it's it's hurting my brothers and sisters who are who are in higher education, pretty much just taking all of this shit every day in the name of preparing the next generation of color. Oh. Yeah, you said a mouthful there. Um, yeah, so, well, two things. I got, so I, I, yeah, I think what you said about not feeling worthy, and I think that's, as I've been looking at uh, different social psychology studies in regards to, again, being a part of, uh, and, and, and particularly how cults work 
you know, it's it's very binary, right? You're in, you're out. And if you're in, you're following all of the rules. But if you're out, woe unto you, you know, those who have fallen by the wayside. Um, but there's a cultish-like ideological structure that exists within evangelicalism. And I've said this plenty of times on the show and continue to say it, uh, is that, you know, evangelicalism is, is, a, is, is, is a scourge on Christianity. And I mean, and most people don't know the difference between the two they just think evangelicalism is christianity and that is what should be done right and so i i think about that and i think about your experience and i think about just where you're at now and you know and thank god where you're at now and that you're able to help others you're able to help your son um it yeah there's and you know and then we can you know, we can get into purity culture and just what that has done to generation after generation after generation we we you know we 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 didn't even you know you need to get into the lgbtq plus you know issues that have that have happened within you know particularly evangelical uh denominations and i'll be honest there are black spaces too that that are that are just as toxic as well right. I, I came out of one mm-hmm. <laughs> i came yep. out of one yep yep so well, if you don't mind sharing, tell me a little bit more uh, about the strip. I didn't know that about you. I didn't, I don't, you know, and I've enjoyed getting to know you and engaging with you, which by the way, I will say, uh, the entire, uh, staff of our intercultural DEI office is gone now. So we are without yeah. anyone. I mean, you, you yeah. know this, but, and the sad thing is about that is that, I rarely mention the, 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 the place where I work just because, just because, but I will say that the place that I work is, um, lighter than most other evangelical right. Christian institutions. I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I would agree with that. Yep. I mean, coming from Azusa Pacific University, which I know it's, 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 they're a little different now, but not really. And I have mm-hmm. some friends that are there and that are doing great work, mm-hmm. amazing stuff. So I'm not trying to disparage them as much as the institution or the institutions, I should say, of private Christian education, because. Yeah, it's systemic. Exactly. It's absolutely systemic. Exactly. It's, a, it's like a Kool-Aid you drink and you don't even yep. know what's happening. And nope. yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. Right. And before you know it, your stomach is upset and you feel like you got to throw something up. And it's just like, yeah, no, you got to throw all of that shit up, man. All of it. All, all of it. Of it. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's all of it. You got to get rid of and it's taken me this long into my own journey. You know, I just turned 50. So it's just like, it, you know, to, to, to begin to feel comfortable in saying, I don't, you know, I have questions about all these, these things here. And I'm not sure about Jesus and historically speaking and, and, you know, that and, and, and not feel like I'm going to then burn in hell. Right. And, right. and, and be yeah. lost in eternal damnation with the devils <laughs> and the demons <laughs> When statistically speaking, at least the, he's trying to ask a question. Right. Okay, like, I didn't even know. I raised my hand. I was being respectful. Let me just say right. <laughs> and if I, you know, and if I listen to to my black humanist fam, you know, statistically speaking, God has more, you know, body counts than than, than the technically the devil. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, but I guess that's a different conversation. But yeah, I, I raised the, 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 the stripper thing only because I've had students that that is how ethnic minority students, that is how they've been paying for tuition. 
uh, is stripping. Yeah. yeah. Real thing. That ain't just a song, you know. You're right. Well, school girl by day, stripper by night. That's yeah. what I said. And a few years, yeah. See, no, that is, and that's just it. And I think I had a, a student. I'll say this, and I, I, I want, I want to get at what you got to say. I, I had a student, but he was a male. He, he was African American, and he, that's what he did. He stripped. Yeah. In fact, his final capstone documentary was on him in the process yeah. of being a male stripper. And because oftentimes, off, you know, people just think, oh, it's just, it's all women. It's just like, no, no, no. Here's this young brother coming to school, North Park University, and he is paying for his tuition with stripping money, right? And so, and he was open about it, very open about it, and like, that's what I do, this is what I engage with. So anyways, I, I say that in this, in this context because I think that's something that I've had to undo purity culture, and particularly when we start thinking about sex workers and folks who do things in an area as society, we've said, oh my gosh, I can't believe that. But in reality, people are showing up. You got executives, pastors, all showing up to the strip club. So anyways. 100. You know, what's so funny is I, uh, first of all, let me say, black men in the clubs who are the entertainers, y'all just really rake it up. Let, let me just hats <laughs> off, you know? <laughs> Okay. Uh, yeah, because I, I, yeah, the 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 friends that I have who are black men who who dance to and strip to is like, wow, my money don't don't go far with y'all's money. But anyway, so yeah, <laughs> I um, I recently was asked by a associate, you know, who was very he's very high profile, said, you know, well, what if you know you're this like community based whatever now, so. Cause you know, I'm still a single mom and there's no support involved, child support and all that. And that, which is cool, you know, it, was, it is what it is. But I said, you know, from time to time, you know, you work in community-based settings, you gotta, you gotta come up with an extra little bit of money here and there. Cause we gotta, I got a family. This is a real life situation. Right, right, right. right. Said, I'm not, I'm not totally opposed to going back to the club, you know, for a stint here or there. And he was like, well, you're this like person in the community now. So how do you, how does that work? What if somebody sees you? I said, listen, I saw them too. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right, right. I saw you too. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so remember my face. Right, right. And uh, here's my, you know, because I remember yours. I've seen yours too. So, yeah. <laughs> right. But, but um, no, I mean, I was in a moment where um, I was – I I had been a professional athlete and a developmental athlete growing up. And I turned professional very young. Uh, and I went overseas after college and I made good money. And um, the person I got with after that manages a lot of athletes, professional athletes money and managed my money. And when we didn't work out and I, I said, you know, I called it quits. Um, my money suddenly got all sold off in stocks. Oh, uh-huh. Oh. Um, so essentially in a day, everything that I had ever worked for was gone. Oh my gosh. Wow. And because, uh, I had signed, um, a short contract to Ebony on ice. I was the only non-black skater who got signed to Ebony, um, and just for a five city tour. Um, and I, uh, actually couldn't do it for a multitude of reasons. Um, 
And then there was like a reality show that they had said, you know, that some producers were like, well, if you can't skate physically anymore, why don't you, or sorry, I was a professional ice skater. They said, why don't you choreograph? Why don't you do kind of the behind the scenes? And I couldn't even do that. So um, there was some medical neglect going on. There was some issues going on um, that I just couldn't have, I couldn't access the proper care that I needed. And then I got into a really bad car accident. Um, Yeah. And around that was the time where I was like, you know, I just couldn't access help. I couldn't, I couldn't access anything. And there was some gender based stuff going on right in domestically. And so, um, so I exited the situation with my son. I had nothing. And then, um, one day, uh, I went to schedule a surgery after the car accident, trying to save my skating career. And um, I found out I'd been pulled off of, well, after the surgery was over, I found out I'd been pulled off the health insurance and didn't even know it. Oh my God, So I got hit with like a $55,000 medical bill on top of, you know, not having any real office administrative work experience, even though I had a college degree, Um, I had been a professional athlete or developmental athlete de facto my entire life since I was five. I didn't know anything else. I was an independent contractor or I was signed to companies. I didn't know. So, yeah. And then between stints, between auditions and shows and stuff, I had always just bartended and waitressed. So, um, yeah, I started dancing in 2019. I was in Bankruptcy. Um, and I wanted my education. So I went to, um, law school prep classes at night. Um, when my son was, um, he just, sometimes I would just have him stay with his, his auntie or his godmother. And, um, yeah, I just took the train downtown and then I would strip and, um, it was a really flexible job. Um, and I was in bankruptcy and then I was always in and out of court with stuff going on with, um, domestic stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And part of the reason why I never really, you know, it was financial for sure. I was broken financially. We lived in a studio apartment on uh, Harlem and um, what do they call it? My, my, my friend's like a, a CPD, he used to be CPD. And he's like, I know what that is. She's like, that's the territory right there on the West, on, on the border of the West side where no one can ever tell if it's gangland or not. He's like, cause it's right there. Like you're right almost to the suburbs. And he's like, people start shooting. You don't know who's who I'm like, yeah, I know that's right. So yeah, we were there for almost three years, I think. And, um, I did the whole pay for all your groceries and singles and got the look, you know, got the look. Oh like, Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of ones. Yeah, shut the fuck up. You right. Know? right. I'm like, listen, I have pride still. You won't see me pulling out no food stamps. Well, eventually I did get them, though, because at Loyola, where I got my graduate degree, yeah. they don't let you be a student unless you have medical insurance. I said, what the hell is this shit? So their medical insurance is real expensive. So I got on Damn. the public public health care. Yeah, I got on Medicaid for that. And I ended up then getting food stamps and I kind of broke down at that point. But um, yeah, I know one summer I lost like nine pounds just because I would just drink like one of those like 7-Eleven big gulps all day because I just needed to make sure my kid had real food. And one day I'm just like, you know, just sucking on my big gulp and Carter's like, are you hungry? (laughs) Oh, man. I was like, no, I'm good. I'm good. You know, he's like, you, are, you sure? Like, chewing on the sh- I'm good, honey. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my 
gosh. So, yeah, so I stripped for, I want to say, and I stripped after grad school too, because, you know, like, I mean, I'm like, you know, you just don't make enough. It's right. just, you don't, it's never enough. Um, and yeah, I mean, I remember and our car broke down and I was out in, uh, I was way out on the South side. Um, I want to say I was out by like Crete Monet. Okay. And I was like, well, this thing going on, you know, and the heat or the air conditioning had already gone out and it was like July. Oh. And so it was like, you know, I had been really trying cause I was like three months out of grad school and I was yeah. like, this is it. I'm done dancing. Like this expression is real. I'm really done. And no, I went back. I went back for the summer because we needed a car, but I was able to flip that car. And, um, you know, at, at some point in the pandemic, I think it was early 2021. Yeah. Um, well, let me back up a little bit and say, uh, sorry, it's a little disjointed. I'm no, having, no. A blue, having a bluest eye moment, but, um, yeah. So I had, I had been dealing with the, uh, the club was the first, my home club is right out by Gary. Okay. And so I had been, afraid of like, um, getting, uh, my money being fucked with by some of the other girls and stuff like that. Just okay. cause I, you know, we always try and keep it real on the low, how much money we we're actually really pulling down. Right. Right. And, um, so I had been a little nervous cause you know, I wasn't, I was stuck out already cause I'm not black or, or Latina or whatever. <clears throat> so that club actually got swept and it got raided quite a bit, but I had been, um, aligned myself. I had been dating the, the house connect. Um, and he had already gone up on some charges and done six years or so. And he was respected cause he was real on site type of dude. Okay. And so, you know, we had our little thing and, um, I, he never, I, I like to say it never crossed over that border. You know what I mean? Like it never, I never brought that life into Chicago with me. Yeah. Yeah. But, it offered me safety, you know, and I know in Central America, like gangbangers are not the, the relationships with the women are typically not the same. And, you know, here up here, it's a little different, I think just whatever, but that relationship was fine. Like he was never, it was never, you know, the boundaries were always fine. And I still look back on that and I'm like, you know, that was the code of the streets though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I, I just, you know, our money just kind of moved that way and we were fine and I never had no issues, you know, but, um, I ended up leaving him for a more white collar guy who got me out of that same club. And I thought that it was a better move for me. And he ended up being a human trafficker. God damn. Right. So the twist, the plot twist to that story is he knew, um, about my situation because he was involved in professional sports. And so I don't know how long he had been targeting me, yeah. but um, I do know in that area that men would come into that club specifically looking for me because they heard that there was a Korean girl. Okay. Uh -huh. Okay. So, yeah. And so I think maybe he got wind of that and was like, I know this bitch. I know who this, I know who this chick is because of her child's father, because of her association with professional athletics, whatever it is. So this is the white collar uh, dude? Yeah. Okay. So I was in that situation for, I want to say over two years. And a lot of my money went to, to paying him out for silence because nobody knew, you know, and I definitely didn't want the courts to know because I was in a, 
custody battle. Right, right, right. Court and I was in bankruptcy. Shit. Yeah, my adoptive mother had cancer, so I couldn't really talk about it with anybody in the family on top of the white Christian thing. Oof. So, yeah. um, yeah, so essentially, you know, it was just, it was all on me. And, you know, I didn't have no eye pass, nothing. It was real on the low. Like, I just, you know, I didn't want nothing to get subpoenaed or anything. Right. And... I knew enough to know that they were going to criminalize mothers of color, but they criminalize poverty. They criminalize poor mothers of color and the heat would always be going out in our apartment. And I could, you know, I couldn't get the landlord to fix the shit. So I knew I was already at risk of stuff and I'm trying to get through school and I'm trying to like live right. Essentially. Yeah. Well, he went to the white collar guy ended up going to prison. He got out of prison and he came back. And that's when the whole extortion thing started. It had gone on a little bit before we were in a hotel one night. And he just, I mean, when you say like these Romeo pimps, they just flip on you all of a sudden. Yeah. I mean, we're like three months into the relationship. I think everything is cool. And one night, I think I, I used to work at a club out in Milwaukee by the Buck Stadium. And I had drove back and he said, well, I had to stay at this hotel for work. I said, all right, cool. I'll meet you there. I'll just crash there. Go to school the next day. Um, and he got on the phone and tried to to call this this judge, this white judge to come in and, you know, pay for sex. And I remember running to the bathroom and being like, oh, fuck, I'm like in trouble, you know? Yeah. And I, and that's when I started to put together, I was like, oh, fuck, it's because I'm Asian. It's because I can code switch. It's because I'm actually going to get an education. It's because this he probably knew who I was before. Mm. And it all kind of started to crystallize, but you don't want to believe it. Right, right. And that particular club that I still to this day identify as my home club, that club is known. It is known for like hoeing. Okay. It's not a clean club. The money is not clean there. Okay. A lot of the money in Chicago is clean because the regulations are a lot tighter. Like you can't even bring no liquor, like have no liquor there. You know what I mean? Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Once you, the further south south you go, like shit is like the wild, wild west. And that's why I liked it. Cause I'm like, let me get this money right quick. You know what I mean? Like like, there's been months where I had to pay all my bills, pay for books and pay $5,000 for an attorney. Cause like, you know, I was just getting that fucked up in court. So, right. So you, when I say you can really pull some shit down out South, like, like don't get it twisted. Yeah. So, um, and I wasn't even like fucking in those clubs. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was just whatever. So yeah. So that went down and I was like, listen, you know, I'm sitting there crying, get the shit beat out of me. And I'm like, what do I do? Right. And at that point, I hadn't told the man too much because he knew about my custody situation. And he was like, you're going to do this. You're going to either do this. You're going to pay me out or I'm telling I'm talking. God damn. Bree. So that went on for a while. And, you know, the problem with that is like, I think because. Um, and I and, you know, don't get it twisted. Like there are some women who I've I've. I was, I'm pretty open about this at this point in my life now, but there are some women of color who I've told, and they're like, you're like a professional victim. How you keep getting yourself into these fucked up situations? 
And now that I'm like, you know, this, you know, learn, like teaching policy doesn't mean I'm an expert by any means. I'm still learning, but I'm able to at least create like, a nexus, right? There's a nexus. Cause I'm like, you know, I'm not ignorant all the time, but <laughs> I'm a human being. And um, I have some degree of education, you know, from, from reputable universities. Yeah. I try to live right, you know, but at the end of the day, structurally, I'm still pigeonholed into these certain situations where by way of social public policy and history and by way of like how that comes down, like public policy informs a lot of individual behavior. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of violent exclusionary, you know, the PAGE Act is one of them, you know, that that really set legal precedent to say we are not letting Asian women into this country on the legal basis and theory that they are all prostitutes and undesirable and sex workers. And, you know, then you had this whole comfort women movement and United States Army men were by like picture briding and marrying these Korean women and raping them and whatever. I'm sorry having consensual relations over there. Right. Yeah. And it's just like a lot of that kind of stuff kind of informs and there's a, there's a trickle down effect. Yes. So I finally had this moment where I was like, I'm, I'm actually kind of being, I felt like I was being enslaved. And I know that that's a very provocative thing to say because on the outside it looked pretty tame, but I'm like one gender based violence situation is allowing this person to exploit me further. And um, all this shit is no paper trail, nothing. Right, right. Oh, I'm right. So I'm like, all right, what do I do? Because I can't lose my son. And right, yeah. And then, you know, I was an intern at at my agency where I'm at now and nobody knew what was going on. And um, I finally just... You know what really saved me, which I hate to say this because that makes these women martyrs, which they are, is when the Atlanta spa shootings happened in early 2021. Yeah. And something in me just legitimately snapped, Dan. And I saw the solidarity going on in Atlanta with the black and the Asian communities and how I think Keisha Lance Bottoms was the mayor at that point. And she was amazing. And she basically just, you know, got everybody in formation and was like, the Korean community down here has essentially helped us flip Georgia or is helping us flip Georgia. And um, they're on board with what with what um, Stacey Abrams is doing. So this traumatic thing has happened where these Korean women in this spa, whether they're sex workers or not, doesn't matter. But we need to be together and say, you know, call it out for what it is. Yeah. And this white man just came and said, I'm going to shoot these women up because uh, they're like video game girls. To right. Me. Right. In the middle of the day. And somebody said something to they're like, really? In Atlanta? He don't drove by 87,000 strip clubs and decided to go to this little strip mall. Right. Where right. there's a small. And, right. uh, and he said, you know, because he his explanation was he shot these women, these Korean women. At this spa, he said, because uh, he had to get rid of his sexual temptation. That's what he said. I remember that. Yeah. 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 And then the police officer who arrested him said, well, I think he just had a bad day. (laughs) Oh, my God. I remember that, too. Yeah, that bullshit right there. Yeah. He's like, oh, he's just having a bad. Yeah. And I took that moment and I swear to God, Dan, that it, it allowed me by the grace of God. 
it allowed yeah. me by the grace of God to release enough of my own shame in that. And just for, even just for that moment, cause Oof. I still have it yeah. that I'm working through and to say, it's possible. This isn't completely my fault. It's possible. I'm not this much of a fuck up. It's possible. It's possible that this is a little bit of a bigger problem than me, that this problem might be just a little bit bigger than me. It is a social problem. So I went to my medium and I wrote this long article about structural invisibility and I outed myself as a sex worker. Wow. Okay. And about, I want to say about a week later, and then I went to a protest through my agency and I just stood there and cried. And I watched this amazing woman, Jihae Kim. She, she's the executive director of CanWin, which works with mostly gender-based violence survivors in the Asian American immigrant community. Wow. And she got up there and she just, you know, she too had like the tears coming down her face and she's, she used to be an attorney. And she was just like, no more of this, this intersection of misogyny and racism. We don't want to die. We want to live. Right. Right. First time that I had ever really seen a Korean woman be able to get up and like, you know, she's like, our stories are not believed. And I was like, no, they're not. No, they right. don't even know about it. Right. 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 And I just, you know, and so I kind of just snapped and, um, I told my boss, my now boss, who was my internship supervisor, what was going on. She's a Korean woman. And she just was, she was so compassionate. It was unbelievable. Just the amount of grace that someone can give you. Yeah. And so um, I think about a week after that, I got a 60 page um, <laughs> um, what do you call uh, to show cause. I had show cause in okay. court. Okay. Okay. And, um, and then I got investigated by a guardian. <laughs> Jesus Christ. About, on the basis of the character of my fitness as a, as a parent, you know, my fit, my, my, my parenting fitness. Oh my. Wow. And that was a very scary time. Absolutely. And, um, I think my boyfriend quote, quote, started to kind of realize that I did not want to be fucked with anymore. Okay. Okay. So at that point, I think I'm about eight grand in with him. I think I'm maybe 70 grand in with the lawyers. I'm trying to pay for school. I'm trying to go to school. I'm trying to, you know, do things. Right. Right. And I'm just exhausted and there's still a pandemic going on. Right. And, um, fortunately for me, I would not say this woman is an ally by any means, but the GAL is an older white woman and she has not done anything advocacy wise. But what she did say to me is she interviewed me for almost four hours and she said, you know, the way that the, the, the opposing counsel has painted you is not the conversation I'm having with you. She's like, they made you seem like a train wreck. And she's like, you know, she said, I once had a mother who was running an escort service and I asked her the same questions I asked you. Do you take your kid to these establishments? Do they ever have any interaction with the men or the workers? Are you paying? Are you spending time with your kid? Then I don't need to know about how you make your money. Wow. Wow. And really, in essence, that was the heart and soul of white feminism, right? They just want to get their money. They just want to get paid. Mm. And our problems are not their problems. True. 
Well, in court, as you know, you, as a woman, you're either a nut or you're a slut. I mean, it, and you kind of fall into those two categories and stuff. Exactly. Having, having, mm-hmm. it, it, having even worked, you know, particularly with young women who had been raped or young women who had been date raped. I mean, it just, it is crazy. Oh, she's crazy. She's crazy. Mm-hmm. Oh, she's crazy. Look what she did over here. Or, oh man, she's a hoe, man. And you'd be, I mean, well, you not, you would be surprised, but I think the people who don't know about this would be surprised the amount of times that you get a judge who's a woman and she'll just go right along, you know, with, you know, either that dichotomy and stuff. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's disassociation. It's their own trauma. It's the whole idea when we talk about it with racial racialized, it's like not all skin folk is kid folk. And I, and I, and you know, and who knows what these women have really gone through and what they're dealing with too. And they can't, or they can't yet deal with. And, um, you know, you don't know, I don't know what I'm triggering in them too, but, um, yeah, you know, it's been, it's been a lot to break free from. I feel like I'm still breaking free from it. Yeah. Um, and so much of that definitely is decolonizing myself from what it means. Yes. Right. And just like, you know, and just having to you know, I'm not blaming this on my white parents or anything in any, in any, in any way. They're, they're lovely people. Absolutely. Lovely people. But I do think that again, the institution or the systemic issue of like me having to survive. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's either, you know, you either call out this racism or you call out your experience or the constant gaslighting of them telling you that like these experiences aren't real, your problems aren't real, like your identity isn't real and that just erasure, that's a survival mechanism. Right. And to kind of go along with that all these years, I do think played a small role in why I went along with it with these men. Yeah. And, um, they, they may be, you know, and, and a high statistic of women who are trafficked and a high statistic of women who go into sex work are children of the child welfare system. Mm. And um, I sat on a advisory council meeting with Congressman Danny Davis a couple weeks ago. And okay. so much of criminal justice reform for juveniles is 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 interacting with the child welfare system. And um just the level of aces that that brings. And so I know, you know, I was like a perfect target in a lot of ways. Yes. And so trying to heal from that and just forgive myself is a lot. Hell yes. Hell yes. I, yeah, I'm, I am just awestruck. It just, that's that particular story. And I appreciate you sharing that because that, that's a, that's a lot. Um, and yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm just kind of like, wow, because I mean, that's for what women have to endure, especially ethnic minority women have to endure on so many levels. It's just something particularly as a male that I don't have to think about. I don't have to think about when I go out to my car in the evening and it's, you know, one of them dark ass lit parking lots at the school that, you know, I don't think about any of those things, right? If anything, I'm the one that they're going to be calling the cops on or see like, Hey, there's a strange guy over here. Um, and so I, it, these are the type of things, man, I, I just appreciate you sharing and, and the work that you're doing right now. The question I have, and I, I'm sure somebody, how did you get out of the white collar dude? How'd you get out of that relationship? How did, how did that all, all that in? I got, I got to ask. Okay. So you know how like, 
uh, when Megan Thee Stallion got shot in the foot yeah. by Tory Lanez. Yeah, yeah. And then he shot her in the foot, and then he told her to dance, bitch. Yep. That pretty much encapsulates the relationship that I was having. And, um, and, and I, I remember just finally being like, this is how this going to go at my house. This is what's going to happen and not going to happen. And he kind of looked at me like I was, who are you? Yeah. And I said, well, no, motherfucker, who are you? Right. You either get with it or get lost. Because I'm not afraid of you no more. Because all the shit that you don't said that you could hang over my head is like a power dynamic, which is why all these undocumented women get pulled across the border and they get held in these relationships and then they get tethered because they have babies with their pimps and all that stuff. Right, right. I'm like, no, that ain't happening here. Because I don't already outed myself. Everybody already fucking knows what you're going to do. And he's like, well, I got way more shit on you than you got on me. I said, you sure about that? (laughs) Right. So I did something that I, I just don't usually do. Which is, um, Which is, I think, a lot of what the Megan Thee Stallion case was about, too, was mm-hmm. this this beautiful, successful mm-hmm. ethnic minority black woman mm-hmm. who had been a ride or die for black men her entire life. Right. Because we, we understand the dynamics of enough to know, not fully, because we're not you. We understand the dynamics enough of the sensitive matter that is the interaction you will have with the criminal justice system if we seek to access justice ourselves for anything you might do violently against us. And um, and I filed a report. Wow. And that's something that I have mixed feelings about to this day. Um, but I did. I filed a report. And it wasn't no uh, 26 in Cali report. It was a federal report. Um, cross-jurisdictionally for uh, Gender Violence Act and human trafficking. And, um, and I filed that report. And, uh, and that was a huge piece of it for me because I understand that so much of that will never get taken seriously. And it might actually put you in danger because so many of those players who are on the other side of it have power and they have real power and they're involved in those same justice systems themselves. So, um, but I did it more as an act of, you know, I've been risking my life. If I'm going to risk my life, I'm going to risk my life for something that matters. And this Mm. shit is on paper and this shit can be traced and they going to know me. Yes. Yes. I think it was like Aja Monet, you know, the black woman poet. She wrote like, you know, about like women of color who are structurally invisible. And she was like, no, lay down in this valley with us. Mm. Say their name. Say our name. Right. Right. And I was like, you know, if I'm going to die this way. You won't remember me. Right. Right. (laughs) Wow. I seriously, this is, this, this, this is amazing. Um, and, and, and shocking and just, yeah. Wow. Um, I mean, I want to be conscious of our time. I could talk with you for, for hours. Sorry. My cats are back here playing and, and, and going <laughs> off. Uh, 
Oh dear. Um, what what are you up to now? Where can folks find you? Um, yeah, working. You know, say like, man, I want we gonna we gonna we gonna give her you know a good hundred thousand dollar honorarium. You know, come out here and and share. You know, uh, what's going on and what's happening. So, I mean, I'm assuming you're done with school now, right? Because you're teaching. Yeah. So through my full-time job, I've been very blessed to be able to um, be in trial advocacy at Villanova this semester. That's so great. I'll be, I'll be there till the end of June, I think, or okay. April, May, June, something like that. It's a longer program, but um, essentially there is a partnership with the department of justice that works with um, the office of legal access program. And it's an amazing federal program that allows um, department of justice accredited agencies, such as the one that I am fortunate enough to work blessed enough to work for to hold a law license. And if you go to school for an extended amount of time and you get accredited, you do externship, clinical internship, all that kind of good stuff, you can practice immigration law. So I've been practicing, um, since I came back in June, essentially, and this will allow me to do asylum Okay. adversarial asylum cases. Wow. Um, yeah. So that's what I'm doing right now. And then I'm still waiting to hear back from uh, a full JD program because, um, because I, I, I definitely feel like for all of its struggles, um, access to higher education has really transformed my life and it's oh. transformed my son's life. Absolutely. I agree. And, yes. Um, yeah, I know it's like really like lame, but I know Nicki Minaj had said something like, don't depend on these brothers for anything, you know, don't, you know, and yeah. I think I learned the hard way, right? Trying to make decisions to incorporate myself that way. And it ended up really, really kind of like backlashing. And so I just realized, you know, part of that was me just needing to heal on my own. But part of that was me just being able to have the courage to say, I'm enough and I can do this on my own. Yes. And I'm never really alone. Just be very courageous, right? What Joshua 1, 9 says, be very courageous and God will just lead you there. So, you know, for me, finishing a doctorate degree is not a matter of if, but when. Yeah. And um, so that's what I'm gunning for now. And I'm really looking forward to it. But until that time, I'm very blessed to be able to have access to practice law in the meantime, through this wonderful program at the DOJ. Yeah. And and then I'm also a licensed therapist. So I do that on the side for private practice oh for a black woman owned private practice in Bridgeport. It's wonderful. Oh. I'm very, very. Impressed. And then I'm teaching adjunct and raising my kiddo. Jeez. Wow. That is, that's what's up with the therapy. That's that dude, that, that is, I mean, and again, I mean, just your life experience, what you've gone through. I mean, again, what a, what a, a fortunate space people can find themselves in with yourself and, what you bring to the table and being able to understand and see things. Cause you're right. I mean, I agree. And there's a lot of stuff wrong with, with higher education, but it has afforded me, uh, you know, some of the privileges that I have now. Um, and that's passed on to my daughter, right? It's like, she can, you know, be, Oh, what's your college education? You know, what's your uh, college fund for your kid? I'm just like, Hey, it's, it's my, my teaching. Cause she's going to get to go for free for at least undergrad. She'll get to go for free. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's just something that I wasn't afforded my, you know, that my mom didn't have. And so I'm, I'm, I'm thankful to be able to pa pass that forward and just, which is exactly what you're doing as well. Um, wow, Bree, this, there's so much, uh, that, 
that is amazing. I have so much more. I already had a deep admiration and respect for you, but now it's like even further oh, down man. the, the down feeling the line. Is you really have, uh, yeah, you're just like, you know, I say too to like Cherie and Eugenia and say, you guys are like my bumpers. You know what I mean? You just, you, you really do just the guidance and just like the security and knowing and acknowledging how much you go through is just like, you know, thank you so much for just for, for just standing tall. Mm. Mm. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, I will put as much as I can in the show notes. Uh, do you uh, advertise your therapist stuff? Do you have a website or anything like that that I could put out there? Or if, like if somebody wants to yeah. get a hold of you? I'm at Safe Place Counseling in Bridgeport. So, um, yeah, just look us up online. Safe Place. We're also on ZocDoc. We're okay. on Psychology Today. Okay. Um, yeah, it's just a wonderful Black-owned practice. I'm just so, so blessed. And, um, yeah, yeah. So, please... Uh, so please hit me up if you're interested in services and um i'm also going to be contracted therapist a little bit over at hunnell's mental health center in lincolnshire so yeah so you can hit me up either way and um i I think life is good if you want to get in touch with me otherwise you know I'm on, I'm on all the, I'm on all the spots. So <laughs> I heard that. I heard that. Well, I'll put all these in the show notes, especially for those of you listening and we're like, like, wow, my gosh, um, where can I get a hold of this amazing person? Um, whiteoutpodcast.com and uh, forward slash profane faith. Bree, thanks so much for taking the time out of, I know you got a busy life and uh, for taking that time out and just coming and, and sharing, you know, what is going on in your corner of the world. Thank you. It's been good to talk. Are you an alumnus of an evangelical college or university? Or have you ever wondered what attending or working at one of those schools is like? The Chapel Probation Podcast brings you the stories from students, faculty, and administration who experienced all the racism, the queer phobia, the misogyny, and purity culture weirdness that are kind of the hallmarks of these schools. I'm Scott Okamoto, author of Asian American Apostate, Losing Religion and Finding Myself at an Evangelical University, which tells my story of teaching English at an evangelical school and realizing I didn't believe in God or the Bible anymore. I created Chapel Probation as a complement to my book, but this podcast has become its own community of people who have stories of hurt and pain and stories of triumph during and after their time at evangelical schools. Some of the guests you've probably heard of, but most of them you probably haven't. But all the stories are incredible examples of surviving Christian schools and finding ourselves. You can find Chapel Probation wherever you listen to podcasts, and I hope you'll join us.